Section 25. In Germany in Old Age. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Hirsch. Though we have had occasion to mention Germany repeatedly, there has been no opportunity to call attention to the great importance which the general attached to our work in that country. It seemed almost as though we had been premature in our attack upon the country. So little were either governments or people prepared for our violent urgency when we began in Stuttgart in 1886. But the general lived to see his annual visits to Berlin looked forward to by the press and public as a natural provision for the spiritual wants of those who had practically ceased to be of any religion. In the following description of him, taken from German papers during one of his last visits to the country, we get not only some idea of his appearance to the people when he was 81 years of age, but his sense of the importance of that people in the future of the army. And it is a remarkable fact that German cities should have been subsidizing the army's work before any English one did so. We have happily got complete enough accounts of the general's tour in Germany when 81 to supply not merely a most artistic representation of his own appearance and action at that age, but at the same time to give an almost perfect view of the impressions and teachings his army had been giving out there for nearly thirty years. In Dusseldorf, we are told, the old idealist spoke for an hour and a half with the fire of enthusiasm, throwing out every now and then some spark of his humor amidst his stream of eloquence. He did not speak like a dying greybeard, but like a young man ready to take up tomorrow morning the struggle with the misery of the whole world. Out of such material as this old man are made the great men who do great deeds on the battlefield, in the sphere of science, in the province of religion, of humanity, and of society. The Cologne Gazette goes more into detail and says, at his great age, the founder and leader of the Salvation Army hastens from continent to continent, from land to land, to awaken in public meetings love for your neighbor. After a journey through Holland, he came into West Germany. In this week, he speaks in great cities from Dortmund to Karlsruhe, each day in a new place, and often in several meetings. Many thousands came together last Sunday from Essen and neighborhood, so that the great hall of the soldiers' home itself was not large enough to hold them at the various meetings. Here yesterday evening two thousand people wanted to give him a warm welcome in the Emperor's Hall. The eighty-one-year-old philanthropist, who strides so unbendingly along, is full of youthful enthusiasm. His tall figure, with its gleaming eyes, long curved nose, and flowing beard, help him to present himself to the audience with lively gestures illuminating his thoughts, as at once accuser of our times and gentle judge. He is especially a gentle judge of fallen women and girls, 55,000 of whom 
from ten years of age upwards, he tells us, the army has rescued. The fallen young men are forgiven by their fathers and mothers, says he. Why should not we also forgive the fallen girls? If nobody else will do so, we will. This sentiment called forth general applause. And then the general went on, The religion of the army has three main principles. You must get right with your God. You must be reconciled with him and feel the kiss of his forgiving love. You must live righteously in your own private life, in your family, and in holiness of heart. You must give yourself up to the service of your fellow man. Must not wait to be called upon, but must have a fire in yourself, the fire of love. It took mightily hold of the audience as, following upon this definition of the religion of the army, he told them that he felt himself now nearing the cold stream of death, but fully believed that this religion which had carried him through so much of care and disappointment up to this day would also carry him through the dark valley into paradise, where he, who for so long had known no holiday, would at last find rest. Everywhere in Germany it is this revelation of a religion, founded on unshakable faith, which impresses even the skeptical journalist. Here and there the tendency to doubt shows itself a little between the lines, and it is suggested that the audience were only for the time being under the spell of this remarkable speaker. But most impressive is always the description of the general's calls to repentance and faith. In Berlin, for a number of years, the general held meetings in the great circus bush on the National Bushtag, Repentance Day. And as the way in which his name is pronounced by most Germans comes very near one of the two words, it has almost become a booth day in the thoughts of many. It was evident, says one paper, again in the two meetings held yesterday, that the personality of the founder and leader of the army still exercises its charm. Both meetings were crowded. The circus was filled from arena up to gallery with a pressing multitude. At the close of the evening address, there was the call to the penitent form, and 158 men and women out of the most differing circles of society, obeyed the call. Mr. Booth spoke in both meetings with the freshest energy and youthful fire, and today he travels to Denmark. The Frankfurt Gazette and other papers, having the opportunity for the first time to report the General's meetings on a whole Sunday, a little later gave a much completer description of his preaching. The founder of the army, says the Gazette, bears his eighty-one years lightly. He is still equal to all the toils of the agitation, and spoke for over five hours in three meetings in the great hall of the Merchants' Union. The old gentleman keeps up his good humor, and perfectly understands how to intersperse interesting anecdotes in his address. Last Sunday, says another paper, was a booth day and certainly a repentance day. The general came to win soldiers for his army, 
and ammunition for it, too. But there was plenty of opportunity for repentance given. Everybody knows now the why and wherefore of the army's meetings. There is music, then prayer with closed eyes, and then a little sister sings a religious song to a worldly tune. That was so yesterday, but then the general came as chief speaker. He had no need of any other influence. His mere appearance works upon everyone. The public was composed of all sorts of people, politicians, socialists, as well as clergymen and leaders in church work were there, together with officials and working men and women. Nothing could be more impressive as to the ever-widening circles who crowded to listen to the general than the following description of his meeting in Potsdam, the German Windsor, where the emperor generally resides. Says the local paper, one could not cease to marvel at the crowded state of the auditorium. The intelligent public, which generally keeps away from popular demonstrations, was there in force. Jurists, state officials, officers in uniform, doctors, and many ladies were amongst the hearers of the general. But some of the papers, in smaller but not less striking reports, gave us a far fuller description of what the general's appeals brought home to the hearts of his hearers everywhere. No labored rhetoric, said a Leipzig paper, distinguished the speech, and applause was not won by catchy phrases. The speaker talks like a plain man to plain people. Everybody listens enthralled as he tells of his life's work, of the unbounded love with which he would like to surround and lead to salvation everyone who lives and moves. One gets to understand how this man could gather round him such masses of disciples, and why, right and left, many a lady deeply touched puts her handkerchief to her eyes, and many a man wipes a tear from his cheek. Best of all, however, comes ever and anon in these reports the testimony that the general has not been a mere talker, like so many others of his day, but has raised up a real fighting force who have, by gradual painstaking labor and endurance, won for him this unbounded confidence in what he says of the army's religion. I remember, writes one reporter, how in the nineties in Berlin no soldier, much less a sister, could appear in the street without being laughed at at every step, made fun of and even abused. And I visited meetings in which there was great disorder. But how the picture was altered a few years later. Quietly and patiently the soldiers let scorn and even assaults pass until the very rowdiest of the Berliners were sick of it. And on the other hand, everyone soon said that these people, after all, were doing nothing but to go right at the deepest miseries of the great cities, that they fed the hungry, visited the sick, and generally carried out practical Christianity. True, writes another, it is, naturally, not everyone whose taste is pleased with the ceremonies of the army. 
but before the worldwide, unending, unselfish work of the Salvationist, everyone feels like saying, hats off. It was not mere love of sensation that led such a stream of men to the Prince's Hall on Tuesday evening. They wished for once to come face to face with the old general whose work they had learned in the course of time to value. Men of science, clergymen, and officials and educated people generally for once made the army their rendezvous. And those who had heard the general before immediately recognized that they had not only to do with the very same resolute leader, following the one aim with undiminished ardor, but relying upon the same old gospel to win the world for Christ. He speaks, says a Hamburg paper, mostly with his hands behind his back, swaying gently to and fro. The short, sharp English sentences are translated one by one. It is the old recruiting talk of the chief captain in the fight against the sins of this world, the pressing exhortation to get converted at once, today, in this very hour. It is the old entreaty to become a child of God, in spite of all opposition, the old call to purity of heart and life. Whoever has wandered must come back again. He who has fallen a hundred times must get up again for the hundred and first time. This general believes in the salvation of the worst and the most deeply sunken. He preaches the gospel of holding on, of going steadily forwards, of freedom from the lusts of the flesh and from public opinion. He preaches at the same time the gospel of work, of unwearied faithfulness in business, and of love to all mankind. When he has finished, the army sings with musical accompaniment and clapping of hands its glad and even merry-sounding songs, not without a mixture of that sudden inrush of enthusiasm which springs from the conviction of having the only faith that can make people blessed, and the consciousness of a resistance hard to be overcome. And then begins that extraordinary urgent exhorting of the sinner from the stage, the ten and twenty times repeated, Come, come to the penitent form, represented here by a row of twenty chairs. In the last meeting of the generals in Copenhagen, thirty-three came out. How many will be in Hamburg? cries the leading officer. The first are soon kneeling, sobbing, praying, their hands over their eyes at the chairs. Ever new songs are sung, spiritual songs set to worldly melodies. Ever anew sounds the ringing, come from the stage. Below, the men and women soldiers go from one to another, speaking to the hesitating ones, laying a hand on the shoulder of the ready ones, and leading them to the front. What a long time it may be since any loving hand was laid on the shoulder of many of those recruits. Life, the rough, pitiless life of the great city, 
has always been pushing them along lower and lower down till it got them underfoot. Here they listen to the sound of a voice of sympathy and feel the pressure of a hand that wishes to lead them. And there above sits the general for a while in an armchair, saying, The deepest fallen may rise again. He has only to step out into the ranks of the army, which is marching upward to the land of grace. As we left the hall, the 34th had already come out. It must be remembered that all these descriptions come from part of a single month's journeys, and that the general was dependent upon translation for nearly every moment of intercourse, either in public or private with the people, and that it will be entirely understood how great a power for God in this world a man entirely given up may be after he has passed his 80th year and with what clearness witness for God can be borne even in a strange tongue when it is plain and definite. From time immemorial it has been customary to class philanthropists among the extraordinaries, the marvelous people, who do not pass muster in the common world. Exceptions. Nobody thinks of measuring himself with them, for the battle of life belongs to the egotists, each one of whom fights for himself. He who fights for others is smilingly acknowledged by the well-disposed as a stranger in the world. The ordinary man of the street pitilessly calls him a fool, and the mass considers him unworthy of a second thought. He is there, and he is endured so long as he does not bother anyone. There are three factors against which the old general has had to fight all his life. Against well-meaning hesitation, against hard-hearted egoism, and against the idle indifference born of ignorance. And these three streams that have flowed against him in every part of the world have not been able to hold him back. To those who think he has only become an important man, and to those who measure a man's worth by the outer honors he gains, he became a man of importance when London made him a citizen and Oxford an honorary doctor. And now men are better inclined to excuse, in his case, the curious title of general of a curious army. I have often heard the gray-haired general in public meetings. For the first time on Saturday evening I got near to him in a more private way, and then it seemed to me like a picture, as when a gray warrior, a commander with snow-white beard and keen profile, stands upright by the mast of a ship and gazes straight before him towards a new country. And General Booth, despite his eighty-one years, is looking out towards new land. He does not live on memories like the generality of old men. He does not allow himself any favored spot by the fireside. Full of fight and always leading, General Booth stands at the center of a gigantic apparatus, and the old gentleman does not look like allowing men to take the control out of his hands. Everything about him displays energy 
and justifiable self-consciousness. He energetically shook my hand. With the ability of the man of the world, he drew the conversation to that which was nearest to his heart. And what his eyes can no longer exactly observe, his ears doubly well hear. He arrived on Friday evening from Denmark, holds three meetings in Hamburg on Sunday, travels on to Potsdam on Monday, and occupies himself with thoughts of a journey of inspection in India. The comfortable armchair that was offered him he declined almost as if it was an insult. That is meant for old men, he said, and really the remark was justified when one heard the plans of the Grey General, for he has plans such as one of the youngest might have. He appears to me to be an able businessman who constantly thinks how to expand his undertaking and to supply it with all the novelties that a time of progress offers. He has altogether modern views. He does not hold fast with the reluctance of old age to old things, except to the old faith. In the meetings the generals seem to me rather severe, but that disappears when you get at him personally, especially when you have got used to his way of speaking. He almost flings each sentence out. Every phrase, accompanied by some energetic gesture, is like a war cry. I will, and I carry out what I will, seems to breathe in all about him. And who can complain of this will, this iron resoluteness with which he works at the raising up of men? He is in his kingdom an unlimited ruler, but one with a benevolent look who sees for the benefit of the blind. He must be all that for his extraordinary work. The general asks us to put questions. I could not imagine it. It seemed to me to be so useless in the presence of this important man. So, he said, we are never satisfied with the progress we make in view of what still remains to be done. He spoke of the progress made by the social work of the army in Germany and of his plans. I never heard the general speak without his having plans, upon the carrying out of which he was at work with all his might. He puts his whole body and soul into whatever he is engaged in. The Salvation Army is the most interesting thing under the sun, said the general at the close of his earnest talk, and then added jokingly, next to the Hamburg press. On the Sunday I saw him again as he spoke to a meeting of thousands, a curiously mixed public, where there were many of the foremost gentlemen and ladies of society, and many very common people. All, however, were equally enthused. I will only mention a couple of sentences out of the speech. The army wants to come into competition with nobody, only to be a friendly helper, nobody's enemy, but the friend of everybody. It will gladly be an inspiration and an example. It has become the almsgiver for many governments. It is not British because it was born in Britain, just as little as Christianity is Jewish because it came into the world in Judea. Elsimirstadt. Now that we see it all but completed, we think this book singularly wanting in reference to the general's frequent merriness of mood. 
we have thought it needless to insert any of the amusing anecdotes that could have been so abundantly culled from any of his visits to any country had we not been so anxious to select from the small space at our disposal what was most important nor have we wished to present the reader with the portrait of an infallible genius or a saint who never said or did anything that he afterwards regretted a victim almost all his life to extreme indigestion it is indeed to all who knew him best marvellous that he could endure so much misery without more frequently expressing in terms of unpleasant frankness his irritation at the faults and mistakes of others but really after his death as during his life we have been far too busy in trying to help in accomplishing his great life work to note these details of human frailty end of section 25 recording by tom hirsch